Our reading of scripture this morning is found in your bulletin, as well as on the screen behind me. From the book of Revelation, we read together. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was, and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was, and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, 
and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. So if you're thinking you want to read scripture, you should know that in the spring we're going to be utilizing the gospel of Mark. So plenty of challenge there, but you don't have to say sexual immorality over and over and over if you're going to read from the text. This morning at our nine o'clock service, there was a um, 12-year-old girl there with her dad and uh, ended up chatting after the service. I was like, so Revelation 17, fun first time to come to church, right? And she sort of laughed, you know, that like, I recognize the pastor's making a joke laugh. It's not funny, but, you know, what am I going to do in this moment? In all seriousness, there are many ways that we are grown up as human beings, right? We grow up through experience, both the time parts of it and then acute experiences often of suffering. We grow through learning things we didn't know before. And the revelation takes truths that are not new scripturally, and it shows them to us in ways that are new, and it's challenging. This is the most visceral and I think horrific description of one aspect of suffering that we know of from other texts in the scripture, but don't know what it looks like from the king's perspective in the spiritual realm. And so if you're disturbed by some of the images of chapter 17, good job. That means you were paying attention because it is supposed to disturb us and then lean us back onto the promises of God. You know, a Philadelphian Christian listening to this would have been holding on to the verses that Jesus said to the church even into chapter 17 as they were listening to this incredible description of the great city. You heard the angel, right, describe the prostitute as the city. We don't want to argue with the angel when it tells us exactly what an image is, right? I mean, maybe you do. I don't. You, maybe you do. One of the reasons that God allows suffering, one of the reasons, is because evil is often utilized by God to destroy evil. And because we are not holy or good or just, that is still challenging for us to understand. And yet throughout the scriptures, it is, it, and it is not the full description of suffering. I'm not positive that exists. But in the midst of a full discussion of suffering is the point that God allows evil at times to destroy other evil. Revelation 17, quoting Jeremiah 51, written a long time before, not quoting, referencing Jeremiah 51, displays to us in a spiritual way what that will look like. 
And yet the description of the Philadelphian church is one that I find encouraging, though, though challenging, this open door, shut door, you have but little power. And it made me think of you as I was preparing the beginning of last year and then this spring and then this week reading these texts because the Philadelphian church is not condemned. The letters to the churches, you'll often see that one of the churches is, or, or that there's usually at least one encouragement and one strong pushback. You'll see it in the Laodicean church later. Jesus says, if you do not recover, I will spit you out of my mouth. So that's negative, right? And as I was reading this, I was thinking of all of you because Jesus commends their uh, patient endurance. When he says you have but little power, he also calls them conquerors. And so I was picturing you at the proverbial water cooler of your work. I don't, do, do jobs still do that? Are there still water coolers? No, no, yes, no, yes, a little bit. Okay, but you know what I mean when I reference it. And I picture you there and one of your coworkers is perhaps frustrated with something and you get to answer them with kindness, whether it was about you or another person. I picture you there remembering something about their life that they didn't expect anyone to remember, a hard story from a year ago or two years ago. And whether you mention it in spiritual tones or not, you're being a good friend to them. And in those moments, I would bet you do not think that that's a significant moment. I would bet in that moment you don't feel like you just did something significant. And yet in the language of the revelation, that is conquering. When we act like a Christian in the places where God has called us to, whether that's extending forgiveness, asking for forgiveness, avoiding gossip and slander, remembering a, a tough story in the life of one of our coworkers far later than anyone expected them to remember, Revelation calls that conquering, though you don't feel like you have much power. Which reminds us, hopefully, that Christianity almost exclusively throughout history has flourished when it is a marginalized sect. In truth, in terms of what it is supposed to be and what it actually is, Christians have flourished spiritually the way the Revelation would describe when they do not have power as the world would esteem it. The Philadelphian Christians listening to this in the 250 years prior to receiving this letter, I'm assuming it got to them around the 90s AD, the city had been destroyed twice by earthquake. And yet here is Jesus speaking to them directly and then a little less directly in the rest of the book. There are many earthquakes in the book of Revelation. Do you remember what happens after an earthquake and during it in, in the book? It would say, and the people did not repent. And then in chapter 11, there's a parable about the role of the church in the world, speaking love and truth, and people repent. So there are 40 Philadelphian Christians knowing something about their city being decimated by earthquake and being told by Jesus that the 40 of them are called to make a difference in ways that natural disasters cannot. And they were encouraged. And I say that because I doubt that in reading chapter 17 of the Revelation, you're encouraged. And yet, even as challenging and dark of a chapter as it is, it is to encourage us during the in-between time, the time that we have the good news of Jesus, but he has not returned. 
the church is to hold fast to them. And in verse 12, it says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. The church holds fast to that promise, even as they hear this barrage of imagery. So now moving to chapter 17, the angel explains, and the angel explains in verse 18 that the great prostitute is the great city. And do you remember all the images for the great city? The city is a spiritual representation of how the work of Satan combines with a sinful world, oftentimes in cities. The great city is called Egypt, which is biblical imagery for how people oppress one another and enslave them. The city is called Sodom, and that's men and women both harming one another and, according to Ezekiel, their chief sin was neglecting the poor. And then the city is also called Jerusalem. Jerusalem's sin was ignoring the message and the work of Jesus Christ. Why, though, did John have to go to the desert to see this? I think this is one of the more unique parts of of Revelation 17, you know, the, the, the revelation will give you a kind of a panoramic view, like with the trumpets, and then it'll zero in, and then this is kind of a medium picture, and go ahead and, and hit that slide, Liam. So why did John have to take a ride into the desert? Go ahead to the next one. And then he sees the woman on the seven-headed beast, I'm trying to give a little levity to the sermon since we're talking about sexual immorality and the great prostitute and all that kind of stuff. Go ahead and go back to the outline, Liam. I think the reason that John had to go to the desert to see, and we don't know if he flew there, that was the author of the Brick Testament taking some good artistic license, I think, is because she's bedazzling. Did you see, am I, am I allowed to use that word? I'm probably not cool enough to talk about her bedazzledness. But you notice that John recognizes her jewelry, and he's impressed. She was adorned with gold and jewels and pearls and holding in her hand a golden cup. And the imagery is negative and yet it's brilliant at the same time. And I think this is encouraging to us because while the revelation is pressing us towards full allegiance to the Lamb, because the alternative is full allegiance to the world, even John, the apostle, John who received the vision, was amazed at the seeming beauty of the great city. When uh, I've gone to New York City a couple times with my kids, they are very hit and miss about it, right? Because we've gone to Ground Zero and it's solemn and beautiful. And we've gone up in the building and it's, it's incredible. That experience is incredible. And then there are 60,000 homeless people in New York City. And my 13-year-old said, I don't ever want to go again. And she, will, you know, she may change her mind on that. Who knows, right? But that's my kids and me having some sense of what Revelation shows us in the spiritual sense, which is that the enemy's effect on the world plus men and women's tendencies to sin ends up leading to oppression, harm, a marginalization of the poor, and a rejection of Jesus as Lord. Those are all the images of the city. And I, did you catch all the references to sexual immorality? It's not because the Bible is so obsessed with sex. It's actually because we are. And so the Bible uses that as an imagery to show us how, 
problematic it is, how evil and destructive and horrific when we give our allegiance to materialism. This has more to do with allegiance to financial security than it does with sexuality, though sexuality is included in an allegiance to the world and to the beast. But throughout the Revelation, the reason that phrase is used is because in a vision from the king's perspective, when we choose lives of death instead of lives of life, it does look that horrific. The woman who is the city collaborates with the beast to harm and to oppress and to lead people away from Christ. The angel's explaining the beast and he's referencing some verses in Daniel and I, I, I try to mention this as often as possible, not because I want to impress you, which would be extra funny if you're in the nine o'clock service because I got the references wrong and I got so flustered. Not sure how many of the people could tell, but I'm going back and forth in my Bible and I, I got them confused. But because when John saw the visions that he saw. He knew his Old Testament and that helped him to understand what was happening. And if you're willing to go back to the Old Testament, the revelation loses a ton of its mystery. So in Daniel chapter 7, verses 17 and 18, we learn something about the beast. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth like the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth from Revelation 13. And then in verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess it forever and ever. And then to verse 20, and about the ten horns that were on its head. Sound familiar? Sounds like I'm reading out of the Revelation, but this is a vision Daniel received that has a great deal of similarities to Revelation because the imagery tells us similar things. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints. The angels explaining the beasts and the times. And yet something's happening here that happens throughout the Bible when it begins to talk about the future. If you've read the, the Gospel of Mark, it happens in chapter 13. If you've read the Gospel of Matthew, it happens towards the end, I think, chapter 23, where Jesus will talk about our lives in light of the future. Then he begins talking about the fall of Jerusalem. Then he begins talking about his return. And the further into history he gets, the vaguer the language gets. And so if you're looking at verses 9 through 13, what are your thoughts on this tongue twister about the king who was and the one who was not and the seventh and the eighth? He must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. I think what's happening here is God is explaining to a first century Christian that the nation of Rome, the empire of Rome, will come and go. And he's not explaining it directly because that would be beyond their imagination to imagine that Rome could be totally taken over and then rise again perhaps with even more power. See, seven heads is every time a representation of Rome because it was known as the city with seven hills. So every time they hear the seven heads of the beast and then ten is more of a number of completion, that's what a Turkish Christian, a Philadelphian Christian, would have heard. And so this is God beginning to explain to them and to us the way that the beasts affect the world 
and how it will come apart. In chapter 13 of Revelation, there are two beasts, and one is the the beast of imperial power, and part of the reason I showed the verses from Daniel is the beast in Revelation is like the synthetic, sewn-together version of the ones of Daniel because it's not four nations, it's one. And that one nation will come and go and will oppress people. The second beast is the propaganda machine of the first beast, and we've seen this in history and in time when nations oppress people and they have a propaganda machine that gets people to believe in it and incredible harm is done, physical harm and spiritual harm. And yet what's going to happen here is very biblical and also, I think, the most visceral and tough image of God allowing evil to destroy itself. And again, if this bothers you, that means you're paying attention, and I'm grateful. A couple weeks ago, we did a little bit of a deep dive into Lord of the Rings, and I referenced the Cimmerillion, and I'm going to do so again because I think it's a phenomenal representation of what happens here. In the Cimmerillion, which is a book that tells the expanse thousands and thousands of years of the history of uh, Middle Earth. Oh, yeah, we're going there. There is a creature who is begotten out of evil, and her name is Ungoliant. An ungoliant sucks the light out of a tree in heaven alongside the Satan figure. And then the Satan figure gets so, his name is Melkor, so nervous about this spider figure that sucked all the light, he hides. And the spider figure eventually eats herself. And she is not a created creature, but as evil entered Middle Earth, evil began to beget evil. Similarly, there are the beasts that affect the world. There's the sin of men and women that changes the earth into a darker place. And the beasts end up coming of a mind that they want to destroy the city. And we see this visceral picture of evil destroying evil. You see it at the end of Revelation 17, for God has, starting in verse 16, and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will make the, will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast. And if you're familiar with Jeremiah, this is how John understood the vision he received Listen in verse 1 from chapter 51. Behold, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon, against the inhabitants of Lebkamai. And then in verse 7, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken, the nations drunk of her wine. Therefore, the nations went mad. And verse 13 describes Babylon as, O you who dwell by many waters like the description of the great prostitute in chapter 17. What we see, and this is a repeated refrain in Revelation, and it is not sweet to us to watch it, but it is an important part of understanding who God is. He will deal completely and completely justly and purely with evil. And one of the ways that we know scripturally but see more viscerally and perhaps far more vividly than any of us would like, 
one of the ways he is going to deal with evil is to allow it to destroy itself. And however troubled we are by the imagery, ultimately if we understand evil, we are thankful that he will deal with it. We are not just, and so imagining that troubles us. We feel hypocritical, but he is just. We are not good, not altogether good, not pure. And so we, we see this image, and it's troubling. But he is pure, and his justice and his goodness will be, will fill the earth. And before the temple of God can come to earth, that evil must be gone. And if you are a Philadelphian Christian, listening to this text, you would be holding on to all the promises from chapter three. That's my encouragement to you today, is not to just meditate on the the images, although that's worthwhile. We are given the scriptures for a reason, to understand the full counsel of God. But a Philadelphian Christian would be holding on to these promises. How many times is the name of God brought up in chapter 3? Just in the handful of verses. They are given the mark of the very name of Christ. And this is so like God, if you're familiar with the Bible. When when God appears to Moses in the beginning of the book of Exodus, the bush that doesn't burn, right? The bush that was behaving oddly. God describes himself as Yahweh, as he who is, and he who will be. It's a very tricky word to translate because it transcends our understanding of time and of language and sounds like the revelation, he who is and who was and who is to come. Followers of Christ receive his name and we hold on to that promise. Followers of Christ receive his city. The reason that the city, which is a spiritual image given to John, is done away with is not only because a great deal of evil is present there, but also so that the city of God may descend in holiness onto earth, that we might live there forever, where we get to rest from sin and death, where we're given work that's not cursed, work that is a delight. Can you even imagine that? Doesn't the revelation press our imaginations where the suffering we have received is not only healed and explained but restored to us tenfold as challenging as Revelation 17 is it brings us into the promises of the rest of the book that are so very sweet Throughout the scriptures, because of the work of Christ and the Father heart of God, we are given new names. What does the Bible call us because of the work of Christ, friend? What does the Bible say that we receive because of the Father heart of God, the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit, heirs to his kingdom? What does the scripture call us as human beings? his children, which might annoy you, except perhaps in our humility, we're so thankful to be loved directly in a childlike way. So as challenging as chapter 17 is, what we are to do in the in-between time, knowing the gospel of Jesus and yet waiting on him to return and set things to rights, 
we are to hold on to the many promises spoken and alluded to to the churches. I'll read again from chapter 3, verse 12. The one who conquers, which is following Jesus, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we long in this moment to be in a world without sin and death. In the meantime, would you give us the patient endurance of your Holy Spirit? And Father, would you, would you comfort us that while we are still in the presence of so much evil and hear about so much more, we do know that you will deal with it in a just and fully loving and pure and a good way. In the meantime, would you attend to us, Lord? Comfort and assure us of your love. Amen.